Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Just before we jump in, today's podcast is brought to you by my premium coaching program, Lean Gut Mind Method. In this busy world, women struggle to prioritize their health and they constantly find themselves frustrated with a lack of results. Lean Gut Mind Method coaching service provides expertise, personalization, and a proven system of tools so that women find themselves empowered to live their best lives in a body that they choose. If you're a female who struggles with weight loss, emotional eating, and poor gut health, and you're ready to change once and for all, let me and my team help you. Lean Gut Mind Method is the last nutrition program you will ever need to invest in, and the first program you will see lasting results from. Let us show you the way. Apply for my premium one-on-one coaching program at www.leangutmindmethod.com. This week, our special guest is making her second appearance on the podcast, and we welcome back women's health expert, Dr. Libby Quinn. Dr. Libby is a clinical psychologist and founder of the Women's Psychology Clinic, a boutique therapy space for women in northern New South Wales. Dr. Libby draws on her eight years of university training, including a Bachelor of Psychological Science with honours and a doctorate in clinical psychology. Dr. Libby has been privileged to work for 10 years solely in private practice to assist women of all ages to live a more vibrant life. Now, firstly, if you haven't heard the original episode Dr. Libby and I did together, please go back and listen to that first, as it's a great foundation to build from. Our first episode together was back in September 2019 in season one. It was episode 24, Mastering Your Inner Mean Girl. You'll be able to find it by scrolling back through my podcast episodes. Now, on this week's episode, we start by tackling the beast that is body image. In this age of social media where we see perfect bodies everywhere, how do we learn to stop comparing ourselves and love the skin we're in? Dr. Libby and I then discuss body love and body acceptance and how to deal with our ever-changing bodies as we age, as we have children or manage different chronic health diseases. I then get Dr. Libby to weigh in on health extremes. What happens when the obsession with body image or eating goes too far? How do we know when we need to seek professional help? And how do we conquer the I'm not good enough story that we tell ourselves every day? Please follow Dr. Libby on her Instagram, which is at the women's psychologist. And you can touch base with her on her website, which is thewomenspsychologyclinic.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tag us and share it to your Instagram stories and leave me a positive review or rating in the purple Apple iTunes podcast app. It's in the ratings and reviews section underneath the episode list. This really helps my podcast to get prioritized by Apple, which helps me disseminate evidence-based information to the people that need it the most. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to my podcast so you never miss an episode. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Libby. It was such a pleasure to have you on an episode last year. Um, It was so well received that I'm so excited to bring you back for a really important conversation today. But just for our listeners who uh, may have missed the first episode that we did together, I would love for you to just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do on a day-to-day basis as a women's psychologist. Oh, absolutely, Anne. I'm so excited to be back here and um, yeah, talking about some more evidence-based information for your 
audience. So as you just mentioned, I'm a clinical psychologist. I have completed a Bachelor of Psychological Science with Honours. Um, and then I also completed a doctorate in clinical psychology. So I've been working solely in private practice since I completed my studies, which is about 11 years ago. Um, and when I first came out, I initially saw a really broad range of clients. But what I did find over time, understandably, I had more and more women seeking me out. And I started to notice um, some really universal phenomenons, common experiences for women due to, you know, our uniqueness as women, essentially. So it was about two years ago I founded um, the Women's Psychology Clinic here on northern New South Wales. So given by the name, I solely work with women now um, because I think from my own experience of working with women over time plus what the research tells us as well, there's just so much um, that we need to focus on with women given our unique experiences. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where I really directed my research and my work. So I'm just so phenomenally passionate about, um, yeah, just helping women to really live their best life, essentially. I love that. And you're an incredible psychologist and we are very, very honoured to have you on the podcast today. So let's start by, I guess, tackling the, the beast that is body image, because this is, a, this is a topic that I get questions about, you know, all day, every day, really, from from followers on social media. So. I guess in this day and age with things like social media, you know, it's, it's there, it's accessible, it's free, everybody's seeing it. We see these, you know, quote unquote, perfect bodies everywhere. How do we in this day and age learn to stop comparing ourselves and learn to sort of, you know, love the skin that we're in? Yes, it is such a big issue, Leanne. And, you know, a lot of the research at the moment is really supportive of that. Not surprisingly, the rise of social media and like what you just mentioned, just with the ease of access to it. Um, you know, when we jump on Instagram or any form of social media, we're com- consistently bombarded with all of these images of bodies, of um, people trying to make the most aesthetic pictures of themselves, which um, we know a lot of editing can go into as well. So we're completely bombarded with images and um, all of that, the images that we're exposed to, what essentially happens is we develop um, a construct which has been termed objectified body consciousness. So this kind of sits in our subconscious and all of the media, all of the images that we're getting exposed to starts to collate in this little construct within our subconscious, which is called objectified body consciousness. And what can start to happen for so many women in our modern Western world is we will unknowingly compare ourselves Mm. to this ideal that sits in our subconscious. So it's not just in that real time that we might compare ourselves to an image that pops up, but all of those images actually, they start to form this kind of beauty body ideal that sits in our subconscious. And as we can appreciate what we're seeing on social media Generally, it's not a um, diverse reflection of a woman's body in Mm -hmm. this current day and age. It's quite a narrow ideal. And as I just mentioned before, it can tend to be quite edited. So what happens is we've got all of us walking around in quite real bodies, comparing us to something that's actually quite fabricated. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising then that many women, so many women are going to be dealing with body dissatisfaction or um, body image issues, essentially. Mm. And then I guess, what are some simple tips that you might have for our listeners to try and combat this, you know, comparison that we don't, we don't 
intentionally do or set out to do every single Mm. day. But we have these constant thoughts running through our head, like I'm not Mm. good enough, I'm not thin enough, I'm not pretty enough, my skin's not good enough. Like I remember myself even a few years ago, I wouldn't dare go to the supermarket if I hadn't put makeup on. But now I'm rocking up on this podcast, makeup free. Like I've learned to accept (laughs) that I don't need to look all glammed up just when I'm running to the supermarket and who really cares if I run into someone that I might know. But even for myself for many years, I was I was super conscious of that because I thought that that was how, you know, women should show up as, you know, their best selves every day. So do you have any tips for our listeners at home where we can, I guess, learn to stop comparing or even learn to to love the skin that we're in a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely, Leanne. I think it starts with awareness as a lot of change does. So firstly, just becoming aware of noticing when you might be feeling not good enough when you're feeling triggered in any way because that's normally a really good cue that you're having these thoughts um, where you might be comparing yourself or you might be overly preoccupied with your appearance. Mm -hmm. And as you know so well, Leanne, and I'm sure many of your listeners, that once we can then become aware of the fact that we're having these thoughts, we're able to then practice the strategy of thought diffusion, which means that we can kind of um, look at our thoughts as separate to us, essentially. So if we can notice in that moment, oh, I'm having the thought that I'm comparing myself to that woman over there or that picture online, um, to be able to go, oh, I'm having one of those comparison thoughts. And by having this thought, is it helping me? Is it making me feel good? Mm -hmm. And generally the answer is no. So that's a helpful question to ask is just, is this thought helping me? And then that kind of real sense of empowerment can kick in where we can go, I actually don't have to listen to this thought. So this thought's separate to me. It's something that's popped up in my head, but I can practice that strategy of thought diffusion and let the thought go. And then instead, I can generate a more helpful thought. So what's a thought that I can say to myself in this moment that's going to make me feel good about myself um, and that's going to essentially offer me some self-compassion? So I often work with women around this, that if you find you're having a lot of thoughts about your appearance or you're comparing to others, to actually switch your focus to um, almost this approach of body neutrality, which is where we focus on our body's function. So being able to even, um, yeah, explain some gratitude to our body around, I'm grateful that my body got me out of bed today. I'm grateful that my body got me to the gym. Um, So trying to switch the focus from instead of what your body's looking like at that point, but more on its function. Does that make sense Mm. to you? Absolutely. And I talk to my clients around the same thing where it's, let's be Mm. grateful for what we have. Yes, we can sort of work on that, but, you know, instead of looking in the mirror and saying, I hate my big thighs or something, why don't we Mm. look in the mirror and say, I'm so grateful that my legs are able to carry me, um, you know, around every single day. Cause there are so many people out there who, who don't have legs or who aren't grateful enough to Mm. have a a well-functioning body or have, you know, intact limbs and that sort of thing. So I think when we switch our focus to gratitude, um, it just completely switches our entire thought process, doesn't it? It's such a powerful tool, gratitude. Yes, absolutely. And I think we have, um, due to social media and the kind of social construct of what the woman should be doing today to be worthy, we've actually known that the whole concept of a woman and how we relate to ourselves, there has been a huge preoccupation with our appearance which is what's causing a lot of psychological harm. So I think when we can, yes, switch it to one of gratitude and switch our focus to um, I'm more than my appearance, essentially, like kind of having that sense of wonder of, oh, what else is my body doing? Like my heart's beating, it controls my eye movements, like just 
kind of looking at our bodies more as a vessel, essentially. Absolutely. And, you know, you always you always hear stories of, you know, the popular sort of mean girls in school, but it was like, yes, they might be quote unquote beautiful, but are they a good person? I always mm. like to say to my clients, like, you can wake up every day and you might not be able to control your appearance, but you can control how you are as a human being. So if you wake mm. up and, and aim to be the most decent or honest or the best version of you you can be and just the, the you know, the nicest person and aim to help people every single day that's you know again that's something that a behavior that you can control and that's really helpful for everybody else as well yes absolutely now I'm a huge believer in body love and body acceptance but also I guess loving our body but also wanting to work on this and I'm really keen to hear your I guess your thoughts around this because does you know body love have to be body acceptance or can we work on potentially losing weight gaining weight getting stronger getting fitter getting faster this whole you know body love and body positivity movement that I'm seeing gaining a lot of traction online I love it I'm all for it but I'm also a firm believer me personally that you can do both you can love your body but you can still perhaps want to work towards a goal I'd mm. love to hear your thoughts around this because I think there's a lot of black or white people online it's like working on a goal working on my body or it's loving my body and leaving it exactly as it is is there somewhere we can meet somewhere in the middle in this little bit of a gray area where we can love our bodies but also still want to work on them a little bit yeah I really love this question Leanne because and it's probably a question that not too many people would go to so I really appreciate um (laughs) you asking this because you're so right there is starting to form some two really rigid distinct camps of um yeah body positivity where we're embracing our bodies completely and that if you do anything to try and um, focus on your appearance or focus on your body changing, then, you know, you're bad and that's inciting shame mm-hmm. um, and vice versa. There's the camp of, you know, you need to really be changing your body to be worthy. So I think the first place to start, and I'm obviously going to speak from the psychological perspective because that's my um, area of expertise and de- just to shed some research and light mm-hmm. on that area, I think the first question someone wants to be asking themselves if they're having the thoughts of, I want to change my body. I think it's really important just to make sure our psychological well-being is in check to ask where that's coming from Um, because, yeah, due to society's influence on the preoccupation of a woman's appearance, a lot of us have kind of internalised this, like I mentioned before, that objectified body consciousness. We've internalised this ideal. So some women are wanting to change their bodies to meet this unrealistic ideal. Mm -hmm. And if they're coming from that place, there's a higher chance that um, their self-worth isn't intact. Um, There's a higher chance that even if they change their body, then it can actually create a form of stress where they can then unknowingly put pressure on themselves that they have to keep kind of um, tweaking and toning and perfecting their body Mm -hmm. to stay at that level. Um, and there's a lot of women, um, from what the research tells us and anecdotally from my experience too, many women engage in kind of body manipulation just from an aesthetic perspective mm-hmm. um, due to kind of more core psychological conditions of low self-esteem, anxiety, um, disordered eating, trauma histories where a focus on kind of in quotation marks fixing the body um, becomes a coping mechanism. So that's just... I, you know, the, the whole point around that is to just start from a place of if you notice you're wanting to change your appearance to ask yourself where is that coming from mm-hmm. and kind of it's almost like doing a bit of a background, psychological background check on yourself 
um, essentially? You know, is it to try and control an emotion? Is it because you're in a stressful situation at the moment? And I know for many individuals due to the pandemic that has occurred this year, there has been a sharp rise in people wanting to change their bodies because they Mm -hmm. felt so out of control Mm -hmm. in other areas. So, But at the same time, I think in your question you also suggested, um, yeah, that what about the goals that someone might have for wanting to um, increase their strength, increase their fitness? Maybe they want to, um, maybe they do want to change something aesthetically about their body. And this is where I think it's important to make note of the idea of um, kind of personal body liberation where, you know, if we've done a background psychology check on ourselves and we're feeling like, okay, I'm not doing this from a place of low self-worth or trying to fix something else, I feel pretty good in myself, I accept my body where it is, but I want to build on that, then you're in a good position to be able to say, yeah, I want to build bigger shoulders because I feel like I like the way that that looks for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Or I want to gain some weight or I want to lose some weight. Like I think... um, kind of blending these two camps together in a way, I would say that bridge is personal body liberation, that if you can recognise that you can come from a place of body acceptance initially and accept where you're at and accept the limitations of genetics as well, um, then if you're wanting to do something um, that you feel will make you feel good in a change to your aesthetics, then that's your personal choice and you should have every right to do that. Does that answer that question? Yeah, definitely. And I love just the wording you said around that, like personal body liberation. It makes you feel just that sense of empowerment. Like, I love that. And I always say to people, like, you know, I've got, you know, many, many friends that will say, oh, I can't wear pink. Like pink doesn't look good on me. Whereas like, well, I wear pinks and reds because of my skin tone. Like I I can pull it off. It looks good on me. I've got dark features, that sort of thing. So often like, you know, if you didn't like something about maybe an item of clothing or something, you wouldn't wear that. You wouldn't, you know, you'd you'd wear a colour that made you feel good. And I think the same way about when we think about our health and our fitness goals as well, too many people are saying, you know, I want to have a six pack because it'll um, you know, it'll give me more confidence or I'll 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 mm. love my body more. But it should be around, you know, I want to work on my health to have more energy or to, yeah. you know, um, because as you said, like I, it, I enjoy the way that it makes me look. It's nothing to do with our self-worth. And I always say to clients mm. when they have, they say my goal is around, you know, fat loss or building muscle, that sort of thing. I say, why? Mm. And I'll generally ask them why three, four, five times, because it needs right. to go deeper yeah. than that physical appearance because I want to look good. Mm. Why? Because, um, you know, it, it, makes me feel more confident. Why? Because when I'm eating better, I have more energy. Okay, now we're getting to it. Why? And it's just like you've got to go mm. so much deeper than just what you look like at an appearance level or doing it because you think it'll give you more confidence or you'll love your body more because you can have confidence whatever your body looks like. You can have confidence whatever your size is. You can love your body at any size, can't we? So I yes. think those things in terms of self-worth, we can do um, at any shape or size in terms of our body, but those those goals need to I guess, go deeper, like have a deeper reason in terms of why we're doing that from an energy or a strength perspective or when I eat good foods, it makes me feel good. That sort of way versus I, I want to lose weight and that's all I'm really focusing on, not focused on how losing weight might make me feel better or mm. alleviate my knee pain or something like that. So just having a bit of a deeper purpose in terms of um, some of those, um, I guess, goals that we have in terms of changing our body shape would you agree with that as well just having a bit of a deeper purpose oh 100 percent, Leanne and it's so it's just so nice to hear that you take that approach with your clients like it's essentially more than skin deep isn't it and it's you know just you taking that line of Socratic questioning with them to be able to understand 
kind of what lies what lies beneath mm-hmm. for them essentially. And you know, the research does support that we're more likely to adhere to um, kind of like I guess if you say an exercise regime or um, eating a more nutritious diet when it's coming from a basis of how will this help my body to function mm-hmm. versus a focus on appearance. Um, and, and that's just, yeah, I mean, I think essentially for many of us, what we're really chasing is true health. Um, because when we've got true health, we've got a great level of energy and vitality and cognitive function for life. So when you switch that intention where it's coming from a place of, I want my body to function better, I want to be stronger, fitter, faster versus, um, I want to change what my body looks like. We're more likely to adhere and be consistent with that first approach as opposed to one that's purely based on appearance. Absolutely. And I get so many questions where I can't stick to my goals. I keep self-sabotaging. Mm. I want this, but I can't get it because I know what I need to do, but I can't get it. Why? And I always say to people, because your why isn't deep enough. And a lot of people don't really mm. understand that, but it's like you want to you know, follow your quote unquote diet because you want to look good. The reason you keep self-sabotaging is because that why isn't deep enough. So you're always going to self-sabotage mm. because at the end of the day, the behaviors aren't in line with, you know, like the goals that you actually want for your life. It, it needs to go deeper than that it needs to be more than just what I look like in that dress or losing five kilos for my friend's wedding or something like that like it has to be so much more deeper ingrained in us because our behaviors are are so deeply ingrained in us as well aren't they so our yes. goals need to be just that deep <laughs> yes absolutely absolutely and I think yeah in summary to all of that I think if you know your clients or other individuals listeners if they can go to that stance of if they're wanting to change their body or they're wanting to develop more body acceptance or um, body positivity, I would say, yeah, definitely try to switch your focus instead of aesthetics and appearance to one of function and performance and what that will give you. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, yeah, that we essentially start, if we're wanting to move down the path of body positivity, um, the starting place is actually body acceptance. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, a really big one. And the more we can focus on this idea that we are all genetically hardwired to look really different Mm -hmm. and but media will tell us something else media is telling us that we all need to look the same Mm -hmm. um so i think when we can come you know get our heads across that concept that we're designed to look different and let's embrace those differences and celebrate those differences we're going to be able to you know that's shown to be associated with much higher levels of psychological well-being Mm -hmm. absolutely and taking the focus off physical related goals and making them more about like behavior related goals. Mm. So, you know, like strong looks different on everybody. Healthy looks different on everybody. Yes. Fast looks different on everybody. Yes. So it's really like aiming to be the the better version of you. And that's what I always say to my mm. clients, like it's okay to want to change yourself. But as you mentioned, do it from a place of love first and wanting to make yourself that little bit fitter or faster or stronger. And that's going to look so much different on everyone. So when we're setting this number focused goal, I always mm. say to clients, why? Like, why do you want to weigh 60 kilos? What does 60 kilos mean? Mm. And do you realize that you can be happy, fit, healthy, love your body at 62 kilos? But if you focus yeah. on just that pure number, you're going to feel like a failure, no matter all the other wonderful behaviors that have gone with that. So trying to take the focus off the numbers and onto more of the behaviors, which I know is something you're very um, passionate about as well. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. 
So changing track a little bit, um, I get a lot of questions and I myself am, what am I now? 31. So I know a lot of us <laughs> sort of get to our 30s or our mid 30s and things start to change, you know, appearance wise, mm. body wise, that sort of thing. And I've worked with so many clients whose bodies have changed so much. You know, they go, I'm mid 30s now. I can't do what I used to do when I was 20. Well, of course not, because you're not 20 anymore. Your, your mm. life and your lifestyle has changed. So how can, I guess, Oh, do you have any advice for our listeners at home who might be in their 30s? I guess the advice applies to like new mums, even those who might have been diagnosed with like chronic or autoimmune conditions. Mm-hmm. How do we get our head around our bodies changing and not looking the same as what we did five years ago or 10 years ago? Or a lot of clients say, well, I want to be this weight. And I say, well, why? And they say, because that's where I felt best at. I'm like, when was the last time you weighed that much? When I was 20. Okay, so you're 42 now and you want to weigh what you did when you were 20. <laughs> Hold on a sec. So any advice that you have for our listeners to just again love and accept our body and the changes that our bodies go through as we grow and as we age and as you know our life changes yes I love this question and you're so right that this is a common affliction that so many women I would say probably you know it can start for women even in their mid-20s you know our bodies Mm. start to change hormones starts to change life starts to kind of leave its impact on us and then, yeah, especially for individuals that have had autoimmune or other chronic conditions or women that have um, survived and gone through cancer as well, new moms, like there's, um, yeah, there's a lot to, to try and accept about our bodies changing. And I think, again, coming from what's previously been called kind of quite the toxic body positivity, it's almost like toxic positivity as well where many women have gone, oh, I don't feel good about my body. I need to just kind of jump straight into affirmations. Um, And what the research has found is that if you're someone where you've actually kind of felt betrayed by your body um, or it's hard to accept where it's at, if if I was to say to you, okay, you need to look in the mirror and just say, I love my body shape so much. Mm. Um, if If that's not where you're currently at, what that creates is cognitive dissonance. And which just essentially means that our brain's going, hang on a second, that doesn't compute, that doesn't make sense. Mm. I can't, I don't just feel like I can love my body shape today. Like I feel like, you know, this baby stretched my stomach or my boobs are sagging now. Like, you know, that's really hard for me to get to that place right mm-hmm. now. Um, and it's because it creates cognitive dissonance. It's just quite a mismatch between what we're telling ourselves and our current mm-hmm. reality. Mm-hmm. What is more evidence-based is the strategy of, what I say, meeting yourself where you are. And this creates a greater sense of acceptance. So what we want to do is be able to practice self-validation. And what that means is that, you know, you might be able to go, okay, how am I feeling about my body? Oh, I'm not so great. I'm noticing these changes. And we can validate ourselves to go, yeah, it makes sense that you're finding this hard because, you know, last year your body was looking like this. You've had a baby and now it's looking like that and, and that's okay. So the same that we would validate a friend and say, oh, I can understand you're feeling annoyed about that or I can understand that that's hard. Mm-hmm. We want to be able to direct that to ourselves. And what happens is when we validate ourselves is it actually regulates our emotion. So it calms us down and we kind of feel seen and heard by ourselves and it places us in a better position psychologically to then accept where we're mm-hmm. at. Mm-hmm. Um, and another then key kind of strategy to build on that is self-compassion, which again is really evidence-based. So we want to validate ourselves first, meet ourselves in a reality, then engage self-compassion, which is really talking to ourselves in a kind and supportive way. Um, so the same way that you would talk to a friend or a child or a sister, you want to be able to talk to yourself 
in a kind and supportive way. Um, and that's essentially just by talking to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also want to take that approach of body neutrality. So again, switching the focus from appearance to one more of function. Okay, so even if, you know, last year I could run um, 10Ks in, that, in under an hour, but now I'm over an hour and I'm struggling to get back to that and maybe I won't. To be able to switch the focus to, well, well, that's okay, I can still run. I can still run 10Ks. Isn't that wonderful? Um, what else can I do? So, and, and I think it's important to acknowledge too, Leanne, that a very real experience is grief in this. Mm-hmm. You know, when we um, think back on our younger bodies and what they look like or what they could do, it's okay to feel grief for that, um, which means we just might have big emotions that come up around that. And again, when we use that strategy of self-validation, um, we're able to regulate those emotions. Does that make sense to you? Mm, and I love that. It's not just ignoring that or saying, oh, my feelings aren't valid. Like I, mm. I don't, you know, I always say to clients, like you might not wake up and love your body every day because I certainly don't. And that just mm. makes me human. And that's, I think the biggest thing that I struggle with, with this whole like body positivity movement online. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for it, but I can't wake up and love my body every day. So how could I expect mm. my clients to? But what I can do every day is wake up and be grateful for my body, wake up and appreciate my body. So that's mm. what I like to say to my clients is that we might not be able to love everything about ourselves. We can appreciate what our body can do for us every day as well. And I love also bringing in some of your strategies where it's like, let's just accept these these feelings that we may be having rather than trying to squash them down mm. or create some sort of mantra where it's like, I'm a bad person for thinking that. It's like, uh, it's I'm allowed to have that thought. That thought mm. is okay. It doesn't mean that thought is the truth, but it's just a thought that I'm having and trying to drum into myself that I love my body, I love my body, I love my body might not be the best strategy to be using every day. Yes. Again, I'm all for quotes, I'm all for mantras, but I love how you say we've got to meet ourselves where we are because for so many people we yeah our bodies have changed so much that we we might not be able to wake up every day and love that and if we tell ourselves that we might be lying to ourselves which isn't going to help us long term is it absolutely and and I think it's a key part you know like what you say we want to be moving away from body positivity to actually more body neutrality body acceptance Mm -hmm. um because if we take that body positivity approach and we're actually not able to love our bodies every day and I'm I'm yet to meet a woman that does Mm -hmm. um we actually internalize and harbor a lot of shame. Mm. And as you are so aware, you know, when we're actually harboring so much shame about our body, that is actually what gives rise to, um, you know, higher rates of disordered eating and body dissatisfaction in itself. So it's really key that we don't create more shame for how we're feeling about our bodies or what we're thinking. We validate that, but we also shift the focus to function over aesthetics um and one other thing too because i know it can be quite age-related hormone related as well is that our body fat can sometimes increase or change over time as women and i think another kind of byproduct um due to the rise in social media is women have almost become quite um like allergic to body fat like you know (laughs) if there's if they notice any body fat on their body um or they're on a challenge or whatever it might be it's like oh you know my aim is to just shred body fat I need to get rid of it body fat is bad and something I work a lot on with clients and I've definitely done the work on myself and have reaped the rewards is actually changing how we relate to body fat Mm -hmm. so when we actually come to understand that biologically as women we need body fat for um you know hormone production but what many women don't understand or maybe just not informed about is that you know within our body 
we need um, essential body fats for fertility, for having a healthy um, menstrual cycle, but then also internally around certain organs. Um, we have these body fat pads to protect us. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's also really nice when we can start to go, like, body fat's not bad. The aim doesn't need to be I need to get rid of every last ounce of body fat or really reduce it, but instead to say, you know, it's okay to have some body fat because that's a part of us as women. Absolutely, yeah, and body fat can can mean that you're able to safely carry a child to term or mm. safely nurse that child for, you know, a year afterwards as well. So I love how you, again, made that more neutral thought rather than always like such a negative association with body fat as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. And when we're carrying body fat too as women um, from like a biological and survival point of view, it means that your body feels safe. Mm-hmm. So if we are too undernourished um, and we don't have adequate body fat on our bodies, our bodies actually don't feel safe, which is then what can lead to hypothalamic amenorrhea and then a whole host of other kind of health conditions. So even for myself, like if I notice extra body fat on my hips or my legs, I'm like, wonderful, my body feels safe. How great is that? Like it's, um, you know, you can celebrate it that it's also a sign of health for us as women. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess that leads me really nicely into our next question, Dr. Libby, where I guess health goes to the extreme. So what happens when Mm. our obsession with body image and our negative association with body fat goes too far? So I'd love for you to explain for our listeners, I guess, the difference between an eating disorder and disordered eating, because I'm seeing a lot more of clients or just messages through social media where I'm like, okay, you might not have, you know, atypical anorexia, but there is definitely some disordered eating sort of Mm. thoughts and that sort of thing going on. And that's sort of a, a newer term, isn't it? That if you look back maybe, you know, 50 years, Years ago, I don't think I don't know if sort of disordered eating existed. It was kind of like anorexia, bulimia, binge mm. eating disorder. We had those sort of three bigger types of eating disorders, and now we've got terms like you know orthorexia. That mm. I'm sure the rise of social media has really contributed to a lot of these conditions. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, I think this is such a great question again. So it's important, I think, a great way to conceptualize this is almost viewing it as a spectrum. Mm -hmm. So if down one end of the spectrum, we've got really clinical significant um, eating disorders where you would definitely meet criteria for bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, anorexia nervosa, um, you know, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, like a whole range of different clinical disorders, which essentially means that you would have a preoccupation with eating, exercise, um, body weight and shape. And it's when it reaches a clinical level. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can be a hard one to discern. As you can appreciate, like at what point is that clinically significant? Mm. Um, And it kind of comes down to the doctors or therapists or dietitians' um, assessment of that individual to, you know, kind of go against the DSM and say, yes, you meet these criteria. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's down one end of the spectrum where you would meet clinical criteria for an eating disorder and down the other end is all the different shades of grey where it's disordered eating essentially Um, and so you know that can take the form of lots of different things and it can be quite sneaky in today's day and age Leanne where um, you know essentially diet culture is really really strong it gets dressed up in lots of different ways Um, it gets termed in terms of you know this is a new lifestyle this is a new wellness approach um and a lot of that is kind of diet culture talk which leads to 
disordered eating. Mm. Um, so I would say, yeah, disordered eating can look quite similar to an eating disorder, um, but it may not be as severe um, in terms of the intensity, the frequency and the symptoms that that individual is experiencing. But having disordered eating where you are preoccupied with eating, exercise, trying to change your body and your body shape um, will put you at significant risk for developing an eating disorder. Mm. And just for our listeners at home, I guess I'm just sort of thinking through a few scenarios in my head where I've had clients in the past where I've gone, hmm, no, I wonder if there's an element of disordered eating and I've referred them off to someone like yourself, like a psychologist. Mm -hmm. And just, I guess, to give some examples for our listeners at home, because it's one thing to use all these sort of, I guess, big fancy sort of medical words, but it's another thing for people to actually recognize some of these behaviors in themselves. So I guess things I'm thinking like I've had clients in the past that um, would feel extremely anxious about going out to eat. So they'd go to a, a restaurant for a friend's birthday and not eat anything. Or they'd take their meal in a Tupperware container. You know, yes. they wouldn't eat anything off the menu. Yes. Or I've had clients in the past that would skip um, a birthday party to go to the gym. Like they'd do their exercise session because they're like, I can't go because I have to get my gym session in. So those are sort of two examples that I would think in my head that potentially could be an eating disorder or potentially could just be down that pathway of disordered eating. Do you have any, I guess, other examples for our clients just so they can sort of turn inwards and have a look at their own mm. behaviours or behaviours of friends or loved ones that might be some good examples where you might think this is sort of um, more that disordered eating, um, I guess, down that pathway a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. I think those examples are really great, Leanne, because I think it speaks to um, if someone is demonstrating or if anyone listening is <laughs> noticing in themselves that they don't have any degree of flexibility um, with the way that they exercise um, and the way that they eat their food. So exactly what you said, if you're finding that you're stressed or anxious to miss a gym session, um, if you're stressed or anxious because you have happened to weigh yourself and you're up a kilo or two kilos, um, you know, if certain things like that are causing you distress essentially um, and a question I ask clients is to help them gain that um, perspective on the severity of what they're doing I said you know if I was to watch you for a day in terms of what you did with your eating patterns um, with your exercise patterns with the level of distress that might come up if you're not doing these things how would you feel in terms of if I was observing that or if someone knew if someone who loved you was observing what they're doing what you're doing and these individuals will often say, oh, I'd, I'd be a bit embarrassed for you to see like how rigid I am with weighing all my food mm -hmm. um, or, you know, that I body check myself several times a day by looking in the mirror or taking photos of myself. Um, so that can help to just give an individual insight. You know, if someone else was watching what you were doing, what would they think? Would, would they be concerned mm. about this? Would it be odd? Because I think as you can appreciate, Leanne, and maybe it's not until individuals start talking with you too, that um, there's a lot of secrecy around disordered eating and body dissatisfaction and any individual can kind of justify it to themselves in terms of, oh, I'm just doing this to look after myself. I'm just doing this for, to be healthy. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not until you ask that person, okay, but if I was to watch you for the day or if someone else was to watch you, what would they think? Like would they think this is kind of outside of the realms of, of what's reasonable. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the scariest part for me is I've recently started on TikTok um, this year. And so I get a lot of messages from, you know, 
12-year-olds, 14-year-old girls, 15-year-old girls who say, you know, my mum thinks that I have a problem. And again, it's like, again, what you were saying, where if someone from the outside was to watch your behaviours and make a comment on that, yes, that might feel quite negative to you. But I think that, again, that might be a little bit of a red flag where you think, hold on, is is this something that's actually healthy? If other people are telling me that I'm a little bit concerned about you, or I think there might be a problem here. And again, I thought of another really good example where clients say to me, you know, I'm a big believer in, okay, we can use this scale as a, this is sort of like a baseline weight, but we're absolutely not going to weigh ourselves every day or even every week. And I get my clients to lock up the scale, put it away, out of sight, Mm. out of mind. Hubby can hide it if you want, it doesn't matter, but it will absolutely not stay in the bathroom every single day to be a trigger for you. But I have clients who say, no, no, I have to weigh myself every day. That gives me anxiety. I I, I can't do what you're saying. And that's my point where I go, right, we need, we need extra help here. We need to refer you on to a psychologist. Or when people say to me, you know, I might give them quote unquote a meal plan. So they've got some flexibility and structure around the types of things that I want them eating. But I say, that's okay. Like you don't have to eat off this meal plan, but they say, oh, I'm going to track everything that you'll give me anyway in my fitness pal. So it doesn't matter. And I say, no, no, I don't want you tracking. But they say, oh no, I I always track. I weigh and I track everything Mm. that I eat. So again, one of those things that is not a behavior that's essentially conducive to health, but it's easy to wrap that up and go, no, no, I'm just weighing myself daily or or tracking my food daily as a health-related behavior. So it's one of those ones where you might start off by thinking this might be helpful for my health journey, but it can easily become something that becomes a little bit obsessive and very inflexible, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think what's frightening is that it doesn't take long for something that can start off as a health behavior for that to turn into disordered eating. You know, we do know that one in four dieters will develop an eating disorder. Um, and those statistics are high. Mm-hmm. So it, it just takes to kind of have the perfect storm behind that in terms of we know of other contributing factors of an experience of having been bullied about your body, having had a family member have an eating disorder, being prone to perfectionism, um, you know, trying to lose weight. All of these different factors kind of give rise to an eating disorder. Um, and so it's just important to understand if all of that's in the background and then you start on a diet or you're rigidly holding on to certain behaviours, um, it's, it's just creating the perfect storm mm. for an eating disorder. And I think all of what you're talking about there too, Leanne, I think a great question to ask individuals too is just being able to ask yourself, do I listen to my body? Um, because we know that if we're focused on things like scale weight, even pant size, um, or weighing our food or following certain diet rules, if we're really focused on that and trying to control it in a certain way in quite a rigid manner, we're actually becoming less in tune with what our body is telling us. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same can be used for exercise too. You know, I'm sure you've had the experience, Leanne, where maybe you've gotten up to go to the gym and you're like, actually, I'm still really sore from yesterday or I didn't sleep enough last night, you know, I'm going to take a rest day today and go tomorrow. That's that's listening to your body. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you are more on the end of focusing on external cues rather than internal, you might say to yourself, no, no days off. <laughs> like I need to go to the gym because this is what I have to do and I've got to burn X amount of calories. Like that's that's concerning when there's an over-reliance on external factors. Mm, absolutely. And again, I guess it comes back to that rigidity where people go, I have to work out five days a week. Mm. But sometimes I'll do Q&As on my Instagram stories and people say, how often do you work out? And it's like some weeks none, some weeks yes. two, some weeks six days if I feel great and I have extra time up my sleeve. But it's never like five days a week. 
Yeah. That's it. Five days a week. It's like, it's what I can get in, what I can fit in with my work schedule and my energy levels, how I'm feeling, whether or not I even want to go, that sort of thing as well. So not, I guess, putting yourself in that box where you've got these rigid health behaviors and actually allowing yourself that flexibility to live your life and skip gym and go out with some friends for breakfast and, and that sort of thing as well. Yes, absolutely. And I just love how much, yeah, you're a proponent of that, Leanne. Um, and just how that's a more sustainable um, kind of belief system around health as well and just what we know about what's a huge factor that influences health is chronic stress Mm. and to me there's nothing more stressful than trying to rigidly control your food or your body or your exercise so all of these apparent health behaviors if they do reach a really rigid and obsessive state it's going to be significantly affecting your health due to the stress that's placing on your body. So, yeah, like what you're talking about there, when you develop a more fluid, a more broad, a more flexible and sustainable concept of health, that's true health. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And then I think it's a, probably a good time to chat about when do our behaviours become behaviors that don't serve us so when do we know when we might need to seek some professional help what would you say are some red flags between because I think a lot of people think oh I can't go see a psychologist I don't have anorexia but it's like Mm. you're you're maybe even just one step down that pathway like a lot of people think that we need to be you know quote unquote really bad or need medication in order to go and see a psychologist or chat with our doctor or something like that so what are some sort of um I guess examples or scenarios or red flags where you might sort of I guess, urge more individuals listening to potentially link in with a professional such as a psychologist? Mm, Great question, yeah. And I think, you know, we know that a common um, experience of individuals that actually are feeling psychological distress from having disordered eating is that they will often think to themselves, I'm not sick enough. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's because we have a really kind of narrow view again of what disordered eating looks like which is kind of that image of a woman who's quite emaciated and suffering from anorexia or it's the image of a woman suffering from binge eating Um, and that kind of fails to catch just how broad the spectrum is of women who are suffering psychologically Mm -hmm. because of disordered eating so I would say check in with yourself and do you find yourself having the thoughts of oh I'm not sick enough I'm okay Um, and just really question that again if someone could watch what you were doing would they be concerned um and obviously being a psychologist I'm pretty biased and and after working with so many women I would say if you're experiencing any form of negative emotion stress anxiety not feeling good in your body um struggling to have body acceptance if you notice that you're having an over-reliance and level of rigidity with how you relate to food um if there's stress and anxiety with eating certain food groups like carbs um, or, you know, feel that you have to rigidly stick to what my fitness pal is telling you for that day, mm-hmm. um, can't have days off from the gym. If there's any level of rigidity in certain behaviours surrounding wanting to influence your body um, or have a level of control, I would say now is the time to see a psychologist. The sooner the better um, because, yeah, just if you're experiencing any psychological distress, it's so important to be able to go and speak to a trained professional um, that can help kind of take you off that trajectory essentially and put you more in a trajectory where it's aligned with um, really looking after yourself properly. Absolutely. And it's better to sort of, I guess, even work on these behaviours 
before they quote unquote get too bad. You know, it's like it's better to when you get a little bit of a niggle to take the day off exercise versus that mm. turning into a full blown injury where then yes. you might need six to eight weeks off. I sort of think about it in that respect as well, where you might not think, oh, I'm not bad enough, or there are people that are way worse mm. than me. But it's like you could easily turn into those people before you even sort of realize it or recognize it as well. So better to get onto these sorts of things early rather than wait till they're quote unquote bad enough. Absolutely. And, you know, it's important to understand that disordered eating um, or when it reaches the clinical significance of eating disorders, it's a psychological condition with physical effects. Mm. So it's actually more about what is happening in your mind, what's the thoughts that you're having, how are you feeling, not about what your body's looking like because I'm not sure if you've heard the term, Leanne, about um, atypical anorexia where, you know, what the research is showing us is that we could be of what would be deemed an adequate BMI, Mm -hmm. adequate body fat percentage, um, adequate size shape that would kind of, a doctor could look at you and say, oh, you look really healthy, you're okay, you don't have an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're engaging in any form of, malnourishment or under eating for what your body requires at that certain point in time there's research that demonstrates that under the surface what can't be seen you're actually suffering the same physical consequences as someone who's really emaciated um and it's it's fascinating to actually see the research on this in terms of just there's women who you know they seemingly meet um adequate criteria for for okay body fat and Mm -hmm. weight and size and bmi and all of that Mm-hmm. but they're actually suffering from osteopenia. Um, they have hypothalamic amenorrhea, um, you know, a whole host of issues, which there's so many women walking around with this and they don't even realise because they say, I don't have an eating disorder or I don't have disordered eating. Look at my body. Um, and that that really concerns me, mm. I suppose. Absolutely. And one of the first things I remember we learned in uni, um, particularly within the dietetic degree, if you're going to work as a clinical dietitian um, in the hospital system, diagnosing and um, treating malnutrition is one of the big things that you do. And one of the first things we learned is never, ever look at somebody and assume what their health is because you can be overweight and undernourished. You can be quote unquote morbidly obese and still be malnourished as well so malnutrition is not just about what your body weight is telling you so I think that's a really important point as well for people to realize this you don't have to look a certain way to have disordered thoughts and behaviors and 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 that sort of thing as well it's not just about how you look or what your weight is yes absolutely and even if you've got some that's just reminding me even if you've got some kind of um still positive body health markers so even if you do get your blood tested and they look okay or even if you do still have your cycle Mm -hmm. um that's not a whole complete scan of your body you know you could be suffering from the early onset of pancreatitis from being malnourished you could have um white blood cell depletion in your bone marrow and not know Mm -hmm. um so it's just yeah i can't stress this enough i suppose that for any woman if she's yeah able to sit back and reflect on the way that she's relating to food the way that she's relating to her body the way that she's relating to exercise if it's seeming as though that signals distress and anxiety if you can't do those certain behaviors it's time to seek help Mm, absolutely i think an important topic i know that you you only work with females and i only work with females as well Mm -hmm. but i have had a few messages in social media lately saying why do you only talk about females so i think Mm -hmm. it's important to acknowledge that of course males also suffer with eating disorders Mm -hmm. and disordered eating as well but we i guess you myself and you are 
I guess we only talk sort of to women because they're the, the clientele that we work with. But it's very, um, I guess, important to acknowledge that these these things also happen with with males as well. Yes, absolutely. Switching track a little bit, I'd love to sort of end this podcast with you, Dr. Libby, talking about the I'm not good enough story that we tell ourselves because it's a big one and it happens in many aspects of our lives, our health, our business, our relationships. I'm not good enough. Mm. I don't deserve this enough. And it's a big reason why so many people self-sabotage because they think that they're not good enough and they don't deserve it. So how can we, I guess, rewrite this story in our mind Mm. to realize that we are good enough and we are worthy enough? And I'm sure gratitude plays a big part here as well. Yes, absolutely. And this is, yeah, such a unfortunately a a common experience for for so many women Mm. and a lot of that comes from you know first if we just come to appreciate where does this come from where is the story coming from um it largely forms in early childhood before the age of seven it can be due to that interaction between um kind of hardwired personality variables if you have a bit of a sensitive temperament and then if we have early experience of whether we had parents that role modeled their own not good enough story in terms of not taking risks or not talking positively about themselves. Um, or, you know, we may have received direct messaging from having been bullied or having been um, compared to other siblings or whatever it might have been. A big one can also be if we were actually really excessively praised as children or if the only time we kind of felt we were seen or heard is if we were achieving. Mm. Um, and that gives rise to perfectionism. So the interesting thing about perfectionism is kind of perfectionism is almost um, and and the not good enough story go together really well Um, because if we develop that not good enough story, many individuals will go, oh, I know a way to be good enough. I'll be perfect. I'll aim to just um, set this goal and if I set this goal, then I'll be good enough. So an individual can learn at a really young age that if they complete their schoolwork, if they make their bed, they get praise and acknowledgement. And, mm. you know, given the right genetic hardwiring, that can then set them on the path of I need to always be achieving to be good enough. Um, and that just kind of sets our self-worth on shaky ground because it's impossible for every human to always be achieving. Um, and then underneath the surface, we can have that not good enough story. So the best way to try and work through this is really, one, it's acknowledging that it's there and that it's a story. And I encourage clients to always have a think back, you know, journal, pen in hand, and think back to what were your first experiences of not feeling good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is quite evidence-based in terms of if we can go back to the root cause, if we can go back to the source, maybe it was a bullying incident, um, maybe it was just feeling like you were never you got Bs for all of your work and a parent said you need to get an A. Um, just having to think about what were those early experiences and to go back to that younger child version of yourself and to actually validate them, to say, you know, I know that you're not feeling good enough about yourself right now, but your worthiness is not tied to your achievement. You're worthy for just being born. You're special. You're unique. So it's kind of going back as our wiser adult self Mm. to validate that younger person. And it can sound a little woo-woo, but it's very evidence-based. And the reason I encourage all women who experience this to go and do that is because that's getting to the root system of this belief. Mm. And if we only try and, again, practice positive affirmations or practice a bit of thought diffusion on the surface, it's just not going to be enough because we haven't gone down to the root system. So it's important to express what you felt at that time as a child and to also validate it. And a lot of people find when they do this, they have this big release of emotions 
Um, and that's really powerful. That's kind of what we talk about when we say like we're clearing that old story out in a sense. Mm-hmm. The next step is to really notice that this is a story. So if you're going about your day and you have these surface level thoughts of, oh, look at so-and-so, you know, kicking these goals in her business. I'm not good enough. I wish I could do that. To just catch yourself in that moment, and this is what I call those choice points, where if you can kind of press the pause button and go, oh, hang on a second, I'm having the feeling I'm not good enough or I'm having these thoughts that I'm not good enough. I need to acknowledge that my story has come up and I'm going to put it next to me. I'm going to put all of these unhelpful thoughts in that storybook next to me. And instead, I'm going to generate a more helpful thought. What's a more realistic, self-compassionate, positive thought I could have about myself right now? Um, so that's just kind of managing our thoughts in the mo- moment. And the kind of third key principle I would say is being able to um, get comfortable doing uncomfortable actions, mm. essentially. So a great way to tackle the I'm not good enough story is to, um, you know, if you are setting a goal for yourself with exercise or food or business or whatever it might be, to have that goal but then to really break it down into manageable chunks and to try to just start with what I say is kind of like slowly stretching out your comfort zone. Because a big kind of side effect of believing the not good enough story is we stay in our comfort zone Mm -hmm. and we don't gently stretch it. And if we think about if perfectionism is at play here as well, people set really lofty, unrealistic goals um, and they kind of want to get over there, um, but they don't know the path. They don't know the steps to get there. And they go, oh, they, they might set off on that and then they go, actually, that's unattain- unattainable. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. And so it's that process of setting unattainable goals without a great plan or steps to get there that then leads that person back into that place of, oh, there we go again. There's the evidence. I'm not good enough. I can't do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to be said for have a goal, absolutely, but really slice it down to small steps and think about it of, you know, you just need to focus on the next best move, um, the next best action that's in line with your values. That means you gradually over time, you've stretched your comfort zone. Mm, yeah. And at, uh, you know, my mantra is my two mantras in life are messy action beats no action yes. and 10% better. So that aligns perfectly with this whole, like, I'm not good enough story where because you don't feel good enough, you don't do anything. And then you stay in your comfort zone. And a lot of the times that comfort zone isn't actually one that's serving us, no. but it's comfortable because you've been there for so long, even though you don't want to be there or it's not serving you, it's comfortable to stay there. So as you said, doing a little, a few things that are a little bit uncomfortable and I like to talk in just 10% better. So yes. although you may not feel comfortable to go and do a whole exercise session, if you're sitting there watching Netflix, get up and do 10 air squats and that's as much as you can do today and aim for a little 10% better tomorrow, do 15 tomorrow or do 10 air squats and two push-ups on your knees. And it's just like building that, those small little um, achievable goals every single day, but it's trying to do something every single day that moves you slightly out of your comfort zone and helps you to to grow and, and flourish as well. Absolutely. And and I, I love your approach with that, Leanne. And I think again, sometimes we can get too overwhelmed with the big lofty goal, even like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to try and exercise five times this week. That might feel really overwhelming for an individual of like, oh gosh, I've got to commit to that. And again, just bringing it down to the present moment of um, what's your next action and that idea of just starting. And I can even speak for myself after years of training and loving it like even this morning I woke up at 4 30 and I still had the thought of oh 
I really don't want to. And I kind of just, I, I was having thoughts of I don't feel good enough. And, you know, I was able to kind of get into my wise mind to just go engage some forethought and go, you know, how are you going to feel after this? Um, you're having these thoughts. You're not that your thoughts, they're separate to you. And you need to just start and see how you go. And, you know, the wonderful thing is you can appreciate, Leanne, like once we've started something, um, we kind of get caught up in the momentum of it as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess that was my next question for you to, to stop, I guess, comparing ourselves to others and always thinking that we're not good enough and I'm not enough. And what's the point? Like I did it yesterday and nothing changed. So why should I do it again today? When we're having these negative thoughts, what are your top tips to activate what you term your healthy adult mode? So we get out of our mm. head, stop believing this story and actually work towards something that is going to serve us. So what you call our, our healthy adult mode, how do we activate that in the moment when we're feeling so unworthy, I guess. Yes, I love this question. So yeah, the healthy adult mode, I also kind of call it our wise mind. It's the observer part of our mind. So that's the part of our mind that has the ability to go, oh, I'm having the feeling that I'm feeling anxious or I'm having the thought that I'm not good enough. So when you can sit back and notice your thoughts and feelings, that's when you know you're in your healthy adult mode. Mm -hmm. So a good way to cue yourself into that is to just go, okay, I'm going to imagine that my thoughts and feelings are on a piece of paper next to me or they're separate to me. I'm going to sit back and I'm just going to view them in a non-judgmental way and just notice what they are. Mm. And if you've done that, you are well on track to being in your healthy adult mode. And what it means is that when we're in that observer state of mind, we're not as overwhelmed by the emotion or the thought. And it actually frees us up to, um, yeah, think clearly, essentially, to go, okay, even though I'm having the thought or the feeling, I'm not my thoughts and my feelings. I think that's a big one for us to understand is that we're actually not our thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. There's something that happens within us, but that's not who we are. So when we can know that they're separate to us, it can free us up to go, okay, if I was to not listen to those thoughts or feelings right now and I'm to engage some forethought, so think ahead, um, if I'm to also think about my values, what are some actions that are going to be good for me um, in the next next day or whatever that might be? And you'll be able to come up with some, some ideas of going, okay, yeah, I know a great action is that um, I'll go to the gym this morning. That's going to make me feel good. Um, if I make a smoothie later today, that's going to make me feel good. If I call a friend, that's going to make me feel good, even though maybe I'm not feeling like doing those things. Um, so I think the key part is, yeah, being able to be in your observer mind and thinking about asking yourself the question, what will be good for me versus what do my feelings and thoughts tell me to do mm -hmm. right now? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I love even that thought that what will be good for me. I like to think about that or tell my clients to think about that a little bit longer term. We get so stuck in the moment and stuck mm. in what I call the short-term pain and we're, yes. we're tired, we're, we're sick, we don't feel like it, we're, we've had a long day, the kids are driving, is insane. We get stuck in the moment and all the pain mm. in the moment and we forget how we're going to feel in 10 minutes time. If we eat that whole tub of ice cream, yes, we're going to feel good in the moment. How are we going to feel in an hour's time though? Mm. So as you said, like use some forethought to think ahead just that little bit and think, I don't feel like going to the gym now and I'm exhausted. But if I sit on the couch and watch Netflix and eat a bag of chocolate cookies, how am I going to feel in an hour? just as exhausted probably mm. like no no change versus if I get up now maybe have one cookie go for a 10 minute walk and come back how am I going to feel after that so just giving ourselves those those two choices between right now and maybe in like 15 minutes or an hour's time as well 
Yes, absolutely. Forethought is, yeah, really powerful in that. And just hearing you talk about that too, I know a big one when we're in our um, kind of healthy, wise adult mind is our ability to name emotions. Mm-hmm. So all too often we can get really overwhelmed by, by big negative emotions and then we're stuck in it and that's kind of propelling our actions. So if you can get into that observer mind and just go, oh, I'm having this big emotion, what would I call it? So we know that when we actually name an emotion, it activates our prefrontal cortex, which helps to regulate the emotion just by naming it. So if you feel that kind of big emotion, whether it's anxiety or feeling down or feeling tired or whatever it might be, to just be able to go, what is this feeling? What would I call it? Ah, I'm having the feeling of anxiety. Just by doing that, you've down-regulated yourself. Um, which means you're in a much kind of clearer mindset to make good choices for yourself. Couldn't agree more. And that's so helpful, even with um, a lot of non-hungry eating that so many people do. And I had this conversation with a client the other day and she went, oh, I'm the worst cravings. And I'm like, okay, well, did you talk about balancing your meals? And she said, no, I did exactly that. I can't get this this chocolate out of my head. And I, I looked at my clock and she's in Melbourne and I said, it's, it's 9.30. She goes, I know I can't get rid of these cravings. So I said, well, what are you feeling? And she said, what do you mean? I said, how do you feel right now? And she goes, I'm exhausted. And I said, mm. it's 9.30. Why don't you go to bed? And she goes, it was like that thought had never even passed through her mind. Like she was so just driven to eat chocolate after dinner mm. that she hadn't even thought of the fact that. And as soon as she went, I'm exhausted. And as you said, name that emotion, the going to bed part was like, yeah, of course. that's exactly what my body needs right now. That sounds like a wonderful opinion. And it's like the chocolate cravings were gone instantly yeah. out of her head because her body didn't need chocolate. Her body needed sleep. But she's gotten mm. so conditioned to linking that eating chocolate to giving her that quick energy hit that she couldn't even recognize or name the emotion for what it was. So I love that part and just in naming how you're feeling. There's so much power in that, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's a big one too, what you've just touched on of just if we – are feeling really overwhelmed by our emotions, kind of feeling like our emotions are running the show. If we're constantly feeling down, overwhelmed, stressed, anxious, tired, um, it means that, and I see this for so many women, and I'm sure you do too, Leanne, that so many women are walking around with these big emotions because they've got really big unmet needs. Mm. They've got unmet needs for self-soothing. They've got unmet needs for time out, for fun for themselves. And that's where things like food and alcohol and Instagram scrolling and Netflix become automatic um, patterns because they're the path of least resistance for getting those needs met. So I think it's really powerful and, and I would say probably a big part of healthy adult mode when we can just check in with ourselves and go, what are my unmet needs? What do I need more of? I'm wanting to escape. I'm wanting to numb out. I'm wanting to just lie on a bed all day and they normally give you great clues for what you need and if you meet them in other ways we're less likely to go down that quick path of instant gratification couldn't agree more and we could do a whole podcast topic on this but i know we're, we're busy you've got to, i've got to let you go dr Libby. you've got your clients to look after so i'd love to leave our listeners with i guess just some some thoughts you might have around just being more loving and more compassionate to ourselves we've all had a hell of a 2020 <laughs> You know, the global, the yes. pan, you know, Australia started with our bushfires and we went into the, the pandemics, a lockdown, no one's been out of travel, everyone's going stir crazy. A lot of us are thinking, poor me, poor me, like we're going through that story, we're not good enough, poor me sort of story. How can we learn to be just that little bit more loving and a little bit more compassionate to ourselves in this crazy year that has been 2020? <laughs> yes, this is such a great question to finish on and I think, yeah, it absolutely has been a huge year, that, you know, not what any of us were really expecting. And I think the first point is to really 
focus on the fact that we are all in a relationship with ourselves. It's the longest relationship we will ever have, guaranteed. So if we come to view that the way that we're talking to ourselves, the way that we're looking after ourselves, um, the same stories that we're repeating in our mind, it's when we take that level of self-responsibility of, oh, I'm, I'm in this relationship with myself. Um, so using that as a foundation for empowerment where then I would say, to practice some self-compassion, that whole idea of, yep, meet yourself where you are. If you've lost a job this year, if you have lost supported healthy habits, if you've lost a loved one, you know, if big stuff has happened and it's mean, it means that you're currently in a place where there's stress and anxiety and depression, um, meet yourself where you are. Offer yourself self-compassion, validate your experience and go, oh, this has been a big year. I'm feeling X, Y, and Z. Um, and then I would say, you know, offer yourself that kindness and encouragement, but then think about what will be good for me. Mm-hmm. What's my next best move? Again, like what we were just talking about, if I'm to engage my healthy, wise adult mind um, and use some forethought, what's going to be helpful for me? And I know you're big on this, as you said before, Leanne, with your 10% better and taking messy action, I think we can all so very easily get stuck in the big emotions and the heaviness of this year. Mm-hmm. Um And I've been really supporting so many women on this idea of let's just take some small steps, like, you know, pick one habit or um, pick one daily ritual you want to do for yourself or whatever you might need need and just build on that. Um, And that idea of that, you know, gradually over time, that habit stacking starts to occur um, and you're in a much better place when you started. I love that. And I think that, again, if even if you're listening to this podcast, I know Dr. Libby's given us so much wisdom, but if you're feeling overwhelmed, perhaps I might suggest a, a just one small, simple habit to start with Dr. Libby is just to focus on gratitude. Wake up every day, go to bed every night and just name one thing that you're grateful for. And it might be something simple like, I'm so grateful to wake up with a roof over my head, or I'm so grateful to have a bed to sleep in tonight or to go to to go to bed tonight and turn off the light because that means that I have electricity in my house and some people aren't that grateful. So I think gratitude is always a a wonderful place to start, particularly Mm. if you're feeling scared and overwhelmed and like nothing's working or that nothing you can do is right. Gratitude really does change everything, including our perspective, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that speaks to, I think, um, what we haven't touched on, but just that whole idea that we naturally have a negative cognitive bias. We're wired towards seeing where the threat is, seeing where the negativity is. So if we've got that natural bias as humans and then big stuff has happened this year, that's all we're going to be seeing, really. Mm-hmm. And the more we focus on that, the bigger it gets. So you're so right there, Leanne, when we can just switch our focus to what's working, whether that be, you know, what's working in your life, what are you grateful for, or what's working in your body, what are you grateful for within that, then it just switches your focus and that becomes bigger. That's how we shape our experiences. Couldn't agree more. Dr. Libby, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. I'd love you to tell our listeners a little bit more about where they can reach out to you, follow you on social media. And um, I know you're pretty booked out for the rest of the year, but perhaps get in touch with you and potentially book a consult for 2021. And I do believe you've got an online course coming. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. Yes. So the best place to find me is I'm definitely over on Instagram as the women's psychologist. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, clinically, I'm kind of taking a little break from one-on-one at the moment because I'm in the works of creating a few online courses. 
Um, so one will be definitely centered around just overall women's psychological wellness. A lot of what we've spoken about here, mm. some really evidence-based practical strategies that women can engage. And there's also one that I'm going to be doing on intuitive eating and body acceptance. Love it. So yeah, you can head over to my Instagram to find out more. Wonderful. All right, Libby, it was such a pleasure having you on today. And I really, really hope that we can do perhaps a third podcast sometime in the future as well. Yes, absolutely. I would love that. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much.